Welcome to Finest Work Songs. My name is Matt. My name is also Matt. Matt, we are coming up on a close of season two. The deuce. Closing out the deuce. <laughs> we closed out our inaugural season. Is it inaugural? Mm, nice. Yeah, way to use inaugural. As an Associated Press style book fan, <laughs> I greatly appreciate the fact that you went inaugural and not first annual, <laughs> which for us word nerds is like the worst thing you can say. I'm going to just try and impress you with stuff. Okay. What if I had a little word book over here? I guess that's called a thesaurus. <laughs> I gotta make sure I use the word book, right? Yeah. Matt, as we closed out our inaugural season of Finest Work Songs, we ended with a listener's choice epipod. That was a chance for you, the listeners, to submit choices for albums you'd like for us to end the season on, and then you all voted on it. It was a really close race to the finish line between Creed and Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels 3, barely squeaking out the win. And we had so much fun. We want to end season two in the same way. Mm -hmm. So Matt, what can people do if they want to participate in the Listener's Choice Contest? Review us wherever you enjoy podcasts. We're asking whether you've written one currently or you wrote one nine months ago or a year ago. Take a picture of it, screenshot it, however you want to do that, and just share it on Instagram or Twitter. Tag us in it and then let us know which album you'd like for us to review. Voting will start on July 4th as we celebrate our independence as a nation (laughs) by exercising the right to vote on this podcast. Literally what Thomas Jefferson and company had in mind. Didn't they both die on that day? John Adams and And Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. Yep. And Adams' last words were, Thomas Jefferson lives, even though he had died, I think, a few hours before. And Jefferson's last words were, something extremely racist that we're not going (laughs) to share. (laughs) Jefferson's last words were probably, suck it, Adams. (laughs) I win again. (laughs) Matt, what is it that we are reviewing here today? Today, we are going to be talking about public enemies. It takes a nation of millions to hold us back. Yes, the rhythm, the rebel. Without a pause, I'm lowering my level. The hard drama, where you never been, I'm in. You want styling? You know it's time again. D, the enemy, telling you to hear it. They praise the music, it's time to play the lyrics. Some say no to the album, the show. Bum rush the sound. I made a year ago. You know, you guess I'm just a radical, not on sabbatical, yes to make it critical. The only part of your body should be part of it too. Pass the power on the hour from the rebel of you. Hey, yo, Chuck, man, I don't understand this, man. Yo, you got to slow down, man. You're losing them. Radio suckers never play me. All the this is an extremely powerful, undeniably classic album, and we're going to dive into it today. As always, we begin with our memory of an album. So, Matt, what is your memory with? Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. This would have been released right before starting eighth grade. Okay. Discussion of this album will probably be somewhat uncomfortable because at that time, you know, one, it was like nothing I'd ever heard before. Mm-hmm. But it was also, you could tell that it had sort of ignited an awakening for my black friends and mm-hmm. classmates. And I'll admit, like, I did not get it because I couldn't relate to it. It was so new and so different to me. I remember thinking this album was angrier than it should have been to okay. me at that time. Yeah. Again, because I just couldn't relate to the themes of it. Was it mainly the lyrics, the look, mm-hmm. the message? Which part do you think really? I think, I think it was a combination. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you talked about how metal doesn't speak to you. Yeah. Hip hop has always kind of been that way for me. Like, I appreciate it and I like it. For whatever reason, I've never really gotten deep into hip hop. But I think with this one, it was a combination of the lyrical content at that time for me. I said it kind of awakened something, you know, with, with folks. And 
you started to see a lot of the, the African heritage stuff. People were embracing that heritage. I probably thought, oh, yeah, I've, I've got black friends. I'm, I can understand what they're going through. But I really didn't. That's what this album did and, and continues to do today. You know, it's an extremely radical album. Sadly, still resonates today, probably more so than ever. We are at a time where a lot of events are coming to the forefront of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of undeniable footage has been shown. It's not new, yeah. but just the conversation is, is shifting. This album has been on my list of albums to do, mm-hmm. but I thought it was timely because I think we're going to get to see a message from 32 years ago that may not sound that distant from what we're talking about today. Part of the conversations that we're having today and the actions that we hope to take require a vulnerability and an honesty about what we have believed and what we still believe. Mm-hmm. And I think that before we could turn from those views and learn, it takes a willingness to be open enough. So I appreciate that. Sure. Speaking of being earnest and honest, and what's your memory? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you always look forward to my memories, and uh, they're always 100% accurate. Accurate. So a lot of people are struggling in these times. And my heart goes out to those in the service industry because I have a background in it myself. I started out just as a garbage boy, really hoping to make my way up. And I was a clumsy kid. I had this soup and I spilled it. And instead of coming clean, I was just trying to fix it myself. Amazingly, it worked. They served the soup to an actual food critic and the critic praised it. Mm. They think then that I have some sort of genius. They forced me to replicate the soup It was then that I realized that a rat had helped me make the soup. Talk about a conundrum. Mm. The rat and I learned how to talk to each other. We came up with a plan. The rat would hide under my hatatouille. Some people (laughs) call it a hat, but I prefer the full phrase. And would guide me by pulling on my hair. So the restaurant grew in popularity. We were the talk of the town. I was the star of the show, but really it was the rat. The head chef captured the rat and, and revealed my secret to the whole staff and the staff because I had lied to them and because a rat had been in the kitchen the whole time all left. And so we had nothing Mm. except me and the rat and a food critic was coming to the restaurant. A health inspector was coming too. So we naturally just bound and gagged the inspector, you know, I mean, you got to do what you got to do. We made this meal for the food critic. He called the rat, nothing less than the finest chef in France. And so I was happy to give the rat his due. Mm-hmm. You'd think that the sun would set and it'd be a happy ending, but you can't have a restaurant run by rats. Sure. So the restaurant was shut down by the health inspector and also the fact that we had tied up the health inspector. Yeah. It didn't help matters. Yeah. You know? We all lost our jobs. Even the food critic it was at that moment that I gathered them together and I said, this may be the end of that old restaurant, but you know what? With, with your talent and your backing, it would take a nation of millions to hold us back. <laughs> And when I said that, the food critic was a big hip-hop head. Most of them are. He was like, are you quoting Public Enemy? And I didn't know what he was talking about, but he lent me this album. So that's how I discovered Public Enemy. So let me get this straight. There was a rat inside your hat actually leading the cooking. Yeah. I need proof. Like, I need to know where the pics are. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering how you tied in. You never let me down. No, Matt... My real memory of Public Enemy is my journey with hip-hop began with Run DMC. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, Beastie Boys. Things that had been isolated to Brooklyn and the surrounding boroughs began to get into the mainstream. Mm -hmm. 
so hip hop was something I was into, mm-hmm. but I was not prepared for my seventh grade year that saw it takes a nation of millions to hold us back and yep. straight out of Compton, mm-hmm. let alone a lot of the other acts. But those were two mm-hmm. really big, impactful albums because of the way that they, at least to me, changed the game. Yeah, they were just both so upfront and honest. Yeah, it went from sort of happy, kind of bouncing hip hop to in your face bombastic and intense Mm -hmm. and this album really captures that but interestingly enough matt i hear your story and you say hip-hop wasn't for me and also i had these thoughts about my black friends and i just didn't get it here i am on the other side saying man i was into hip-hop i really loved these albums but i can't claim that i got it and here we are 32 years later and i'm not sitting here thinking oh i got it back then because i listened to these albums i was able to understand and become an ally to all people of color and and not participate in any sort of racism both in my heart Mm -hmm. or my actions or recognize and dismantle systemic racism i can't claim that at all and so that's the argument of some of my best friends are black You know, I mean, just appropriating black Mm -hmm. culture doesn't mean that there's any sort of change. And I think white people have a history of just taking black culture and then thinking, oh, because I listen to this or dress this way, then I'm an anti-racist. I don't experience racism. We either claim it as our own. Elvis. Elvis. Or we do what you just said, where we dive headfirst into it and then act like we completely understand. You give yourself a pass. Yeah, where it's coming from. You haven't done any work. And so that's me. It was part of my culture and my upbringing, and, but I didn't understand, and I still am doing a whole lot of work to try and grow. So let's jump into this powerful album. Public Enemy was signed to Def Jam. They wanted to do the hip-hop equivalent to Marvin Gaye's mm-hmm. What's Going On. So social commentary throughout that would inspire and speak to and for the people. Chuck D said the mission was to kill the cold getting dumb stuff <laughs> and really address some situations. And I didn't know that reference. This is what he was referring to. Cold getting dumb. Hip-hop grew from album to album. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is in a time when you would put out an album and then all of a sudden it sounds outdated. The closest I can think of to this is like the early 60s or mid 60s with the Beatles and the Beach Boys. And I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Yeah. And all of a sudden, fast forward two years. And they're doing Rubber Soul or Revolver. Right. Yeah. But that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Because what Chuck D is saying is that I want to get away from just rapping about rapping. Mm -hmm. Apparently what happened was he and Hank were at a club. They put out their first single was Public Enemy number one. And it was Public Enemy, but... It had that old feel. And in fact, a DJ played it just one time and said, I guarantee you, no more music by the suckers. And just (laughs) completely dissed them. And so they had their single came out. And you would think that you would have your single come out. You'd be all excited about it. You would sort of ride that wave. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it had come out, they heard I Know You Got Soul by Eric B. and Rakim. It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you. Without a strong rhyme to step to Think of how many weeks shows you slept through Time's up, I'm sorry I kept you Thinking of this, you keep repeating your miss The rhyme 
from the microphone solo with. So you sit by the radio and on the dial soon as you hear it. Pump up the volume. Dance with the speaker to your Rakim is often referred to as the God MC, and he still to this day is revered. There's a great book out there by Shea Serrano called The Rap Year Book. Shea Serrano describes Rakim in this way. He says his voice wasn't cartoonish or overblown. It was this cold, icy, methodical thing that interjects danger into even harmless phrases. Hmm. And he wielded it with forethought and jurisprudence, delivering perfectly metered declarations that moved with the sort of velocity nobody had seen. Wow. And he's also rhyming within phrases mm-hmm. instead of just at the end of every line. Mm-hmm. And so he's just changing everything. Mm-hmm. Public Enemy has a song out and immediately they're not proud of it because right. they hear this song. That's where Chuck D got inspired by the rapping. Hank Shockley gets inspired by that production style. And that's what put them over the edge within even a few months to go from Public Enemy number one to this. Bass, how low can you go? Death row. What a brother know once again back is the incredible rhyme animal, the uncannable thief. Public enemy number one, five folks said freeze. And I got numb. Can I tell them that I really never had a gun? But it's the wax that the Terminator X bun. Now they got me in the cell, cause my records they sell. Cause a brother like me said, well, Farrah cause a prophet and I think you wanna listen to what they can say to you. What you ought to do is follow for now. Tell what the people say, make a miracle, keep up the lyrical. Black is back all in, we're gonna win, check it out. Where do you begin? Because you've got Chuck D, mm-hmm. who's the front man. He's got an undeniable power to his voice. And yeah. um, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is The People's Party with Talib Kweli. So when he had Chuck D on here, he said, you know, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not, I'm not the greatest rapper. I don't have the best flow. But one thing I could do is I can, I can yell louder than anybody. And, yeah. and so, you know, he said, my dad was known for it that, you know, if, if we were out there and, and my dad called, you know, you can't have the excuse of, I didn't hear you. Yeah. And it's true because it starts with this iconic bass. How low can you go? Death row. What a- Even hearing it isolated, mm-hmm. I still can't believe it. It's yeah. so powerful. And if you have this powerful voice, you can't have soft production behind it. So behind it, you've got this group called the Bomb Squad. Mm -hmm. These guys have been together. I think they started in 82. Mm -hmm. They grew up on Long Island. Chuck D was studying graphic design. Hank Shockley was a DJ. And Chuck offered to redo his flyers. And so here's this iconic moment where... You know, mm-hmm. they're going to come together and start collaborating, except Hank said, no. <laughs> but later he heard Chuck D at an open mic and was blown away by his voice. But Hank, over time, became known as the Bomb Squad with the Shockley brothers and Eric Vietnam mm-hmm. is his nickname. <laughs> Love that nickname. Within that, you've got somebody who's really musically inclined. Mm-hmm. You've got the anti musician, as they called Hank, kind of the, the genius behind it. They each have different talents. Yeah. But this song, right out of the gate, it's got everything. The power of his voice, yep. this incredibly captivating and inspiring 
message to the people. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this almost chaotic doomsday production behind them. How iconic and almost cliche now is like the siren yeah. in the background of like a, a hip hop song. Right. It has in a lot of ways become like a, a goof and something that you kind of throw in and like to pick on. Mm-hmm. But it's so powerful. And this song on and on this album where they incorporate that kind of effect, not just because it subtly or not so subtly is trying to signal alerts and danger and but musically how it works as a, a thread behind the song and so many other songs yeah on this album one of the unique things about public enemy is that they weren't just speaking commentary on a situation they were voicing the feelings and the fears they were activating people and they weren't afraid to stand up to a lot of those powers the logo was the person in the crosshairs i mean among band logos it's pretty darn iconic it's hard to think of some that are more iconic right there can be a treatment of the name. The Beatles yeah. have that way they wrote their name. Yeah. That's not a logo. Right. You've got the Rolling Stones yeah, yeah. with the mouth, Metallica. But again, that's the that's, way it's written. Right. Pretty much every heavy metal band has done some treatment of their name. But yeah, logo-wise... Grateful Dead has that I mean, the, skull. I, like the, I think the Foo Fighters kind of have a logo. Run DMC, again, their name. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a logo. Right. It has nothing to do with their name. If you just put this image up, people know who it is. Yeah. And they want to be speaking for the people and inspiring them. It's an interesting thing, though, because you could say, okay, they are presenting themselves in power. They are presenting themselves as people who aren't going to be pushed around. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the lyrics, Chuck D starts and he says, once again, back is the incredible, the rhyme animal, the uncannable D, public enemy number one. So he's putting himself out yeah. there as the rhyme animal, the uncannable. But then immediately he says, 5 mm-hmm. said freeze, and I got numb. Immediately he's contrasting, hey, I'm a powerful, talented authority, mm-hmm. and yet here's my interaction with the cops. Mm-hmm. That's something that we have grown increasingly aware of in recent years with really cell phones. <laughs> yeah. But you can't imagine that nothing was happening back then. And all of a sudden, because cell phones are here, that cops started abusing the power, you know? Right, right. And so I think it's interesting that we're talking about 32 years ago. And this person of power who's presenting himself in the very first song on the album is dealing with how it is to be a black man dealing with the police. The use of that word numb is what jumps out at me. Because when he says, I got numb, yeah, here's this powerful, authoritative, intelligent leader Putting himself out there is going to be this driving force, and it just screeches to a halt. It's interesting because throughout this album, you see that they're addressing the critics. Their critique of black radio at that time was that they were just playing music that would help people feel good, Mm -hmm. but not really addressing the pain and the suffering and the injustice that's happening in the streets. Next song we're going to cover on the album is the track following this, Don't Believe the Hype. So here it is again, another death jam But since I gave you all a little something that I knew you lacked They still consider me a new jack All the critics you can hang on my hold the rope But they hope to the Pope and play it ain't dope The follow-up Farrakhan Don't tell me that you understand until you hear the man The book up the new school rap game Writers treat me like Coltrane, insane Yes to them, but to me, I'm a different kind We're brothers on the same mind, unblind Caught in the middle end, not surrendering 
I don't rap for the sake of riddling Some claim that I'm a smuggler Some say I never heard of ya A rap burglar False media We don't need it, do we? It's fake, that's what it be to you, dig me? Yo, Terminator X Step up on the stand and show these people what time it is, boy This is a single off the album. They are really going after their critics with this one. So again, they're going after the guy who said, no more music from the suckers, <laughs> which Flavor Flav was listening to the radio because he knew that their single was going to be played on the radio. And you got to think about the excitement of this. Oh, yeah. Waiting. When, when are they going to play it? I know they're going to play it today. Yeah, because you couldn't just like pull it up on your phone and no. search for it. I no. mean, you, had, you were waiting with bated breath. He's recording it so he could play it back, you know, mm-hmm. and hear the radio DJ announce it. And when the DJ says, you know, I guarantee you no more music from the suckers, well, Flavor Flav then has that yeah. and his first song that we're not going to cover, but I at least want to play the beginning here. He starts it off with this. I guarantee you no more music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. Yo, man, what do he mean by suckers, man? Yo, he only trying to put a black eye in the game. But yo, we going to let you put a black eye in the game, boy. You know what I'm saying? Come to the payoff. So that's another iconic thing about Public Enemy, right? Flavor Flav? Yeah, boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think if you say Public Enemy, a lot of times people do that. Yeah. But also, what a great way to get back at that DJ, since you take <laughs> his words. And that guy's got to feel like a fool. Oh no more God. music by the suckers yeah. to one of the greatest hip-hop bands ever. <laughs> <laughs> do we know who that guy is? DJ Mr. Magic. Please, call him DJ Magic. His father is DJ Mr. Magic. <laughs> Until he got his doctorate. <laughs> DJ Magic, PhD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there were other people who had critiqued them. And so you're not going to talk about Public Enemy without them coming after you. That theme is so prevalent everywhere in this album. Close second to themes of power to the people is them going after their critics. At first glance, I thought they're two very different themes. As I really started to think through it, they're part and parcel of the same overall theme. Part of the reason why they're probably going after these critics is because as they talk about over and over, they want to make sure that this type of music and these types of messages are making it to mainstream radio. Those critics are the ones that that are kind of holding them back on reaching a wider audience. So if they're wanting to take their message and, and take their themes of strength and overcoming to a wider audience, they've got to get over that hurdle. That's why, you know, I think it's so important that they're continuously calling out the critics, the real suckers. And within that, they're calling out the music industry. Mm-hmm. They're calling out systems yeah. of injustice. Mm-hmm. You know, he even says, you're saying it's black radio. And what I'm doing is I'm addressing the real issues mm-hmm. facing people of color. I am inspiring them. Like he said, and you call yourselves black. Well, we'll see if you play this. Right. I think to him, he, he's saying these are important messages. You can't deny the melodies and the power, you know, and yet you won't play me until late at night. Why just play things to placate people yep. or why play things that are just going to make money? Like we've got real issues that we're trying to address here. Yeah. No, it's really random, completely off topic. So, you know, you're doing Ratatouille and I was like looking up IMDb and the voice of Skinner is by Ian Holm. And I just got an alert that he died. What? Yeah. Wait, do you have an in-home alert? I do. <laughs> Who doesn't? Like, <laughs> no, it was like Twitter news for you. Sir Ian Holm, known for roles in Lord of the Rings and Alien, has died at age 88. Wow. 
Google has gone too far. Yeah. They're killing people now. <laughs> I put this together too. The bells of those that boost the dose of lack of lack and those that sell the black. Shame on the brother when they dealing. The same block where my 98 be wheeling. And everybody know another kilo. From a corner from a brother, keep another below. And stop illing and killing. Stop grilling. Yo, black, yo. We are willing. Four, five o'clock in the morning. Wait a minute, y'all. The feeds are feeding day to day to day. They say no other way. Chuck D's opening line of bass is so iconic that in the same album they sample it. Yeah. <laughs> and it sounds amazing. Yeah, right. And there's even the line, I'm talking about bass. Yeah. I mean, it's like, just in case you didn't realize. Yeah. And- so this song has a long video to go with it. Flavor Flavor's a news anchor with another female news anchor, and they're talking about the crack epidemic. It goes back and forth between public enemy rapping mm-hmm. to people basically who are freebasing. Mm-hmm. talking about the issue that this is in the community. I could be wrong, but it seems like there's actual footage in there of people who are laid out in a park. They are addressing head-on mm-hmm. issues of the black community. And in the 80s, the crack epidemic was a huge one. Mm-hmm. Since then, there's a whole lot that has come out about, maybe it's not that simple, yeah. you know, to oh, yeah. just say, oh, they're doing drugs and they want to do these drugs. Right. And, you know, there is a lot in that Reagan era about the criminalization mm-hmm. of drugs. Mm-hmm. And at the end of this video, they have a person on the street played by Moni Love, which is great. And they go in and they break into a boardroom and it's all these white executives with lines of cocaine on the table. And their whole point in the video is you've got these executives who are doing all these drugs. Yep. They're not getting arrested. They're yep. not going to jail. Mm-hmm. And yet, every black person is being arrested and criminalized and the prisons start exploding. And this isn't a political podcast, but I'll just say that part of the reason as we we do this album, we're talking about 32 years ago Mm -hmm. and a lot of what Public Enemy is talking about are the same issues that we're hearing people say today on Twitter. Mm -hmm. If it's 32 years later and what we're realizing now is, hey, you know what? One thing that we can do as white people is listen I think it warrants listening instead of just writing it off and going, I know the narrative. (laughs) I know what happened to actually start to do some work and maybe even do some work outside of our regular news sources. Maybe just start to listen to people Mm -hmm. of color beyond just rap songs and Twitter, but actually start reading up and doing some studies to try and find out instead of just writing it off. I have written things off Mm -hmm. for too long and even feeling like somebody who's with the cause but you know what? I, I haven't done the work. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, hearing a song like Night of the Living Bassheads, some folks are just going to say, no, I know the 80s. And that's just, that's not true. Mm-hmm. There was nothing like that where black communities were targeted. But I'd like to just suggest that it's probably worth revisiting. It's not that simple. I mean, no. I, I think when you, when you get down to it, and one thing that's, I think, really been peeled back over the last month, you know, you mentioned that, well, I have black friends mm-hmm. argument. It's also the, well, we'll start talking about police brutality when we start also addressing black guys killing black guys. Okay, well. Not what we're talking that's about. Not, that's not the same argument. Yeah. And okay, well, then why are they doing that? What are the systems in place that are forcing black communities in the 80s to to uh, be riddled with crack cocaine, crack cocaine and gang yeah. violence. I mean, it's, it's not just that a bunch of African-American leaders got together and said, you know, it'd be awesome if we killed each other and handed out crack. It doesn't work that way. What were, what are you know, the systems that cause this? And to me, that's been the, the most enlightening, if you will, development over the last month is 
the desire and the need to listen and not just put forth our opinion because we think we know what's right. Yeah, if we see the murder of a black person and our first instinct is to find out why they deserved it, I think that speaks to an issue of the heart and also of our society, that mm-hmm. a divisiveness. That's not the correct response. Right. You know, and that's not our duty. Even if you don't understand, stopping, as you and I have been trying to do, Matt, stopping mm-hmm. and listening mm-hmm. and sitting with people and mourning with people instead yep. of trying to write it off. I think you, you made a point a couple of weeks ago to, to me on the text thread where you said, when people are more upset about businesses being hurt and destroyed versus lives being lost, that tells you there's an issue, a mentality that that's where the, the systems come in. Yeah, that's right. Matt, both you and I are students and fans of history. Anyone who reads history would agree that we have a troubled history as a nation mm-hmm. and that corruption of power is a theme that you see not only throughout American history, but throughout the history of the world. Right. And so to think about those in power and the subjugation of people, how the powerless survive, to look at the powerless and just point to them and say, you're the aggressors, and mm-hmm. to look at those in power and say, you're the victim. That is something that continues to allow systemic racism and systemic injustice to continue. Cla- classism, yeah. I mean, whatever yeah. ism you want to put on it. So today we're here uh, as we review this album, and we are a music podcast, but also you know, a lot of what we dig into are the lyrics. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it's timely that we are dealing with what we're dealing with now, and Public Enemy, 32 years ago, is singing about this and also pointing out that, hey, radio and critics, you're not listening. Yeah. Lots of samples in this one, Matt. Thinking back to eighth grade Matt and you know some of the maybe preconceived notions or, or biases I had at that time against hip hop and, and rap music, I think a lot of it goes back to sampling. Because I think at that time, there was this idea that it wasn't creative. It was stealing. You didn't have the your traditional band in the studio coming up with music. Oh, so you've got to go steal it. You've got to take it from here and there. Mm-hmm. It was also still a bit of you know the Wild West with sampling. The record companies had not really caught on yet that this was happening to the extent it was. And then they, they figured out they could cash in on it. And I'm sure it got much more difficult to sample. Right. Again, that bias comes from you know, a lack of understanding. How else were some of these albums going to get made? In hindsight, it wasn't stealing. I mean, I guess technically it was if you, they weren't paying royalties. That would come later. But it was more of necessity and respect. Public enemy hearing a sound here and a horn there, a drum beat there, cutting it and copying it and looping it. That's highly creative. Yeah. And it's not something that I would have ever had the imagination to try. Their ability to do that speaks volumes of having the creativity and the vision to make music that way. We celebrate what the Beatles did with the four track because they took that and they expanded its capabilities Mm -hmm. by mixing down to one track and they were able to do brilliant things. We celebrate Ray Davies for purportedly cutting a speaker cone Mm -hmm. and creating this distortion sound. And then when you look at the history of hip hop and the development of it, I mean, it goes from block parties in Jamaica to people who have immigrated to New York, bringing that feel and then having people rap over it, who speak over it, the DJs. And then it develops into something like this that is highly sophisticated lyrics 
the interplay and the power of it. And then people taking samples and they're not just taking samples and just kind of throwing them in there, mm-hmm. taking a whole song, removing the lyrics and just rapping over it. Right. I mean, they're taking pieces and slowing them down. I mean, the horn in this song, uh, it's from an old song and it sounds like this. And then they take just a portion of that and they slow it down and they add it to other pieces. The creativity there is off the charts and it only continues. Music historically is built on by what you hear before you. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. you don't have the Beatles without Little Richard and Chuck Berry. You don't have those guys without Robert Johnson. Yeah, you don't have Robert Johnson without, you know, probably... A lot of unnamed people. Yeah, (laughs) and and, and, people singing in in cotton fields. Yeah. And so to start to discount hip-hop because they're quote-unquote stealing samples is, in my mind, just highly ignorant because you're discounting what came before it and you're discounting the rationale for doing that. Yeah. I got a letter from the government the other day and read it and said they were suckers they wanted me for their army or whatever picture me giving a damn i said never here is a land that never gave a damn about a brother like me and myself because they never did i wasn't with it but just that very minute it occurred to me the suckers had authority cold sweating as i dwell in my cell how long has it been they got me sitting in a state pen i gotta get out what that thought was thought before i contemplated the plan on the cell floor I'm not a fugitive on the run, but a brother like me begun to be another one. Public enemy serving time to do the line, y'all. They criticize me for some crime. Nevertheless, they could not understand that I'm a black man and I can never be a veteran. On the strength of situations unreal, I got a raw deal. So I'm looking for the steal. Word them up. I'm looking for that steal. Now, there are numerous reasons I wanted to have this song on today, but the first one is that it has one of my favorite lines on the whole album, which is the opening line of, I got a letter from the government the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. (laughs) Not only are music critics suckers, but also the government suckers. This song is neat. It's this narrative of... This African-American man, you know, who goes through and looks at, said they wanted them for the army or whatever, he says. (laughs) And he's struggling because he's saying, this nation has never cared for me or my people. But then I realized they had authority. So what am I going to do? Well, and then the line, I'm a black man and can never be a veteran. Again, hearkening back to probably me and lots of other white guys in late 80s and would hear a line like this and think, oh, you're disloyal. Why why would you not fight for your country? Mm -hmm. Which again is to not look into the heart of where that sentiment is coming from. Right. It just goes way back in our history of our nation. The first thing I thought of when I heard that was I could never be a veteran because even if I'm going to war, they're going to value white lives over black lives. And so they're going to put the black troops into a place of vulnerability, you know, or high risk. And so I'm not going to survive the war. So I couldn't be a veteran. Mm-hmm. I think also, it seems that he would be saying, I couldn't be a veteran, not in the way that you're a veteran. Even up to World War II, the black soldiers who went off to Europe to fight didn't come home to the same responsibilities or opportunities as their white counterparts. And, no. They came know. home to segregation mm-hmm. and for 20 years after that. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So yeah. even 
I haven't studied it as much, but in Vietnam, there's a lot of accounts from soldiers of maybe right. things were a little bit better mm-hmm. because they were in such dire conditions that you had to get past that. Right. But there was still a whole lot of inequality. So yeah, this person's saying, I could never be a veteran, not in the way that you could be a veteran. They choose prison over going to war, which that's a huge statement right there. Mm-hmm. And then it's the story of their breakout, right. which is just fascinating. But like you said, Matt, initially the thought would be if somebody's not going to fight for their country, that's like, oh, you're unpatriotic. You're a traitor. It's way past time that we look past that and just say, hey, tell me why are you feeling that way? And maybe even start to listen and try and understand. Instead of, you know, I'm guilty of this. I think much of white America is guilty of this. Instead of facing the heart of it mm-hmm. and maybe the systems behind it, we fill in the narrative ourselves for why you're doing that and why it's bad. I mean, that even goes up to Colin Kaepernick. Yeah. He sat down. We decided it was bad and unpatriotic and about the flag, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't even know about the white soldier who reached out to Kaepernick, who Kaepernick met with. And then the white soldier is the one who told him to kneel. You can go online and find this out. You know, the white soldier is the one who just said, hey, it's disrespectful. Why don't you kneel? Which is a way to protest, Mm -hmm. but also do it in a way that is not disrespectful to the soldiers who fought, because that was never Kaepernick's point. And so my point is, wherever you land on Kaepernick, we can't land somewhere without really listening. And I think we've been guilty of that. Sometimes it just takes time, but you think of a person like Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. And if you ask 100 people today about Muhammad Ali, you'll, you'll probably get 80 to 90 really positive answers about him and what he did for the black community, what he did for civil rights and and bringing awareness to this 50 years ago, it would be reversed. You'd probably get 80 to 90 negative answers when you ask, what do you think about Muhammad Ali? Mm -hmm. Oh, he's, he's a traitor. He's disloyal. Yeah. He's cocky. He's he's too black. Yeah. Too black, (laughs) too strong. And so we can change those perceptions and and those attitudes, it shouldn't take 50 years to do it. You know, and it shouldn't take 32 years to be still talking about some of these issues that public enemy is. At least there's a glimmer of of hope, of attitudinal change. Now it's what will we do? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's not just up to white America to listen to people of color, but it's up to us to do some work. Mm -hmm. We got to be historians. We got to research this stuff and find out the complicated dark history and face it. We got to be relational and we got to learn how to listen, but how to do some work ourselves, make it so that our kids have a different America. Mm -hmm. And Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream is still unrealized. And there's still a lot of work to go before we even start to see that. Okay, Matt, we really wanted to cover Rebel Without a Pause. That's a huge track of this album, but both of us are running out of time. As always, we have a challenge to take a song off an album. And so you've got Chuck D and Flavor Flav, and they're about to call you a sucker. They would never call me a sucker. For our podcast, unless we take a song off, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. So if you had to, Matt, what song would you remove from this album? This one's tough for me because I'm just not as intimate with the whole album. Kind of just grasping a little bit here. I think I would probably take off Party for Your Right to Fight. I appreciate the cleverness of essentially taking uh, 
a song from their fellow Def Jam <laughs> mates and mm-hmm. Beastie Boys and tweaking it in that way. But I, I don't know, for some reason, that one just doesn't feel as strong message standpoint as the other ones. I agree. I think ending with Prophets of Rage is a little bit stronger. For me, it's cold lamping with flavor. I'm in position, you can't play me out the pocket. I'll take the social speech you got and I'll rock it. Like chocolate, even vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, sarsaparilla. Flavors are electric, trying to get a shocker. Did I tell you leave Flavor Flav alone, knocker? A clock on my chest. First of all, I think Flavor Flav, he's the gold standard when it comes to hype men. Mm-hmm. But I think that his strength is with Chuck D. When you have Chuck D in the band, yeah. Chuck D even said about Flavor Flav, he's like, I have to have him because I'm going so hard and this album is so fast that I need some breaks. Yeah. <laughs> and Flavor yeah, Flav right. gives them to me, you know? I think Flavor Flav is great. This song feels like a departure from the album. And I think that if you need breaks from the seriousness, they've got those instrumental tracks. And I would rather have something like that than Cold Lampin' with Flavor. Okay, Matt, this has been fun. I think we've had a lot on our minds and on our hearts over the past few months. And uh, it's been really fun to do a more serious album that addresses some of the topics that we're dealing with in our society. Uh, But also just to revisit this undeniably classic rap album has been great. So thanks for doing that. That has been a lot of fun. Like I said at the very beginning, I think there's parts of this discussion that are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. It's okay to reset and think back and try and be a little bit more introspective. And it's been more than a little disconcerting to, to think how far we haven't come since that. Yeah. Uh, but that's what this is for, is, is hopefully to discuss and to learn and to, to grow with conversations like this. Are you, are you listening right now? We've got one more Epipod in season two, and you get to decide what we review. So make sure you get on at Finest Work Songs, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or you can email us at finestworksongs at gmail.com. Pressure's on, people. Make us look good. (laughs) Or sound good. Good luck with that. (laughs) Until next time, we hope you stay Stay safe, safe. eat Eat Arby's. Arby's. Enjoy Enjoy time with loved ones. ones. Go to the beach. beach. Listen Listen to this podcast. podcast. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing great. Oh, you're doing great. (laughs) See you later. See you later. (laughs) Our theme song is by the incredible band Medium Heat. This track is called Radio. And you should check them out at mediumheat.bandcamp.com. And check out any upcoming shows if you are in the Raleigh area. They are on Facebook at Medium Heat Music. <laughs>